what on earth do you think you're doing here? <laughs> oh, yeah. he's being funny, isn't he? No, I'm not. What on earth do you think you're doing here? Both here and on earth. And it seems like a very abrupt, rude question maybe, but maybe we're not supposed to ask that question. We're just supposed to show up, right? We're supposed to attend. I think we're called to do more than attend. It's a good question to ask. What on earth, on this earth, do we think we're doing here? Maybe that's a good question for us to ponder and to always ask ourselves what our purpose is and why God wants us to be where we are. You know, we can, we can even just focus that a little bit to this Sunday morning assembly time. What on earth are we doing here? If we really do have a mission, if we really do believe that the purpose of everything is to make disciples, then why do we gather in a concrete building where it's nice and comfortable and climate controlled? Maybe we think we need to be out doing something. And sometimes we do that. Perhaps maybe even to, you know, suffer a little bit to prove that we're serious about following Jesus. And yet I don't know that that's the highest motivation to serve in His name. Uh, Maybe we come here just a little bit to be pleased. If we are going to be doing all this work, we need a little bit of encouragement. We need a little bit of study. Maybe we need something familiar. Maybe we need something new. I can tell you that uh, watching and tracking the, the literature and the discussions and the conversations on, on church growth over the last 15, even 20 years, it gets to the point where what you're constantly forced with is, you know, any kind of worship leader, any kind of worship leader, anybody responsible for putting together worship, you have to somehow supply a need for a great number of people who want it to be always familiar but never boring. This is the task and challenge. And I don't know that that's ever really possible, but more importantly, I don't think that's the point. I think there's a much better reason why we come together in the name of Christ. Do we come together because we're meat machines and we have these eternal souls that are inside these these bodies that will be discarded? And what we're doing is we're hoping to be released and this is just a little foretaste of that. And really what we're doing is we're making sure that all of the policies are in force and all the promises are in force because when the day of judgment comes, we want to make sure that we pass. And we don't want to get discarded and then suffer forever and ever. It, it, so our motivation then to assemble comes to get the angry God off our back. And I don't know that Scripture points out that we serve a mad tyrant. In fact, God is more often described as a powerful creator. What on earth are we doing here? Maybe you never thought about it and you said, well, now that I am thinking about it, maybe it is just kind of a habit. And I'll say, that's the best answer so far. It really is. Because habits produce character. And by coming here, you, you may not know all the reasons why this is good for you and good for others, 
but maybe in so doing, often, we come to discover why it is. And it's not just enough to say we're here because we're commanded. No, otherwise, you're just following orders. There's got, the, scripture never says just follow orders. There's always a reason. There's always good. There's always some, some purpose to what we do. Because of the way God has made things, it makes sense. And likewise, it tells us why some of the things that we may think are okay, or some of the things we may think are sinful, it tells us and explains to us why those things truly are sinful, or why some things we think are okay may not be so okay. First Peter, Peter, and if you've been with us a couple of weeks now, you're getting more and more familiar with this text, and I hope this text doesn't become boring to you. If it does become boring to you, well, it's the only Word of God that we have, and it doesn't change, so you're stuck with it. Um, I don't believe it becomes boring. I think it actually becomes interesting that the more we read it, the older we get, the more insights it gives us. And we can bring our focus in and we can look at the statements that Peter is saying about who we are and why we're here. Peter has an answer to the question, what on earth are we doing here? He said before verse 9 that we're a spiritual house. That we are being built like living stones into the temple of God. But what happens with that temple? What becomes of that temple? He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This spiritual house housing God's Holy Spirit, like any temple, needs to have priests, people who are serving in the temple. The image here is that those who make up the living stones of this temple are also the priests that make up this temple. Your identity in Christ, you're not just the living stones of the temple, but you are also the priesthood that serves in that temple. The priests are not just people like Brent, myself, Rick, anyone else who comes up here into this holy precinct so qualified uh, because we got our you know, licensure off the back of a box of post toasties and so here we are and we stand up here. No, the priesthood is all around. And I walked in this morning and I noticed the priesthood in action. People greeting one another. People seeing to the needs of one another. Wait a second, Benjamin. That's just people being servants. What do you think a priest is? A priest is one who serves in the name of God. My hope always is that all of that wonderful greeting and help and assistance and 
doing things that nobody even notices, that all of it is done in the name of Christ. Because it could be done for a lot of reasons, but it will be excellent, and it will be ministering to others if it's done in the name of Christ. You are a holy nation. Yeah, have you noticed that uh, sports teams now take to calling their fans the nation? You know, whatever the nation is. Well, isn't that interesting? Uh, You you know, Scripture has the copyright on that. Not the NFL, not college football. Scripture started that. This idea that we're somehow gathered together as a people. And nations are not places. And I think the sports analogy might be helpful here. Nations are not simply boundaries and borders and flags. But nations are collections of people who are brought together for a purpose. By by calling us a holy nation, he's saying that God has separated us out. He's identified us. But he hasn't separated us out so that we can stand in judgment on the rest of the world. He hasn't separated us out so that we can somehow feel affirmed while everybody else feels rejected and condemned. He's identified us so that we may tell others about coming to his temple, because as far back as the Old Testament, you see that God's temple was intended to be a house of prayer for many nations. Those who are in Christ, then, are a people who have received his mercy. All of this gives us purpose. It gives us identity. Purpose and identity are linked. Have you ever noticed that when you meet someone... The one of the questions that may be asked of you is, so what do you do? You know, at, at one time that was considered a, uh, and I don't know, it may still be in some circles, but it was considered a, a rude question to ask someone what they do. And I'm not really sure exactly why it's rude. And again, it's just one of those things that, well, that's rude. You don't ask people that. Why? Because it's personal. Yes, but we're trying to get to know them. So you have to ask a few personal questions. Maybe it goes back to the days of class and status, and if you ask someone what they do, they have to be embarrassed about it. That's all Downton Abbey stuff, you know. I mean, somebody gets all upset, you know. It's like, what do you do? I'm a librarian. (gasps) Who? You know, and they, uh, and and it's like, It's a Wonderful Life is coming up. Don't you love that part? I know I'm spoiling it, where Jimmy Stewart goes back, you know, and he sees what the world would be like if he had never lived. And isn't it strange that, you know, they've got Potterville and they've got all the horrible theaters and nastiness and gambling going on there. But the most horrid, wretched thing that could ever be is that his wife has ended up a librarian. Oh, you know, not a librarian. She reads books. I never understood that part of the movie. Um, Nothing wrong with that. But you see, I think some of these things come to us from a time gone by. But nowadays we ask people, what is it that you do, whether they're a librarian or not? Because what we want to know is we want to know something about that person. Or if if their job is is somewhat uninteresting, then we'll say, well, what do you do on your off time? We want to know what people do. Do you go out in the woods in camo and shoot meat that you don't have to shoot to live anyway i mean is that one of the things that you do you know uh you know do you drive or do you drive boats what do you do do you play cards do you are you do you go to the library and read you know what is it that you do you want to know something about that person 
And the things they do, the way they spend their time, their purpose, the things that, that get them up in the morning, that tells you something about that person. Making the point that purpose and identity are linked. Well, when we know who we are in Christ, then we know what our purpose is. There's no room, there's no, there's no cause for someone to be in Christ and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. It's a fair question, but I'm going to tell you it's not an unanswerable question. Because God has purpose for you. And it may be that you need to spend your time at places like this, in gatherings like this, be it this Sunday morning gathering, or be it the informal gatherings that take place in other places now after this, or on Wednesday nights, or just whenever, but you go to these people right here. By the way, everybody turn and look to the person on your left. Okay? Yeah, you see the back of their head, right? Okay, now... You people turn to the left, you people turn, well, everybody look here, look towards the center, okay, look towards the center. There, you see all those faces? Those are your priests. How about that? Not up here, out there. Those are your priests. Those are your ministers, right there. The people all around you, those are your ministers. And they're going to help you find out what your purpose is in Christ because they've noticed some things about you. They've noticed the gifts that God has given you. And now let's just do this for us, okay? Because there's going to come those moments where we, we have those conversations and somebody says, I've noticed that you know, you're a really great singer. I've noticed that you do this very well. or I love the way you greet. And of course, the first thing we're supposed to do, because we're good Midwestern people who come from you know, good, basic, decent homes, you're supposed to say, oh, well, I'm not that good at it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Wait, let's just put a moratorium on that, okay? Because first of all, you're probably really good at what you do, and you, you, you don't want to be arrogant, okay? Then again, you, re- you may not really be that good at it, okay? But you're, but you're trying, you're trying. And people notice that. But we're not just flattering. It would be appropriate to not want to say anything. Maybe the thing to say is, and, and again, I don't want to give us a script, but I just want us to understand that when you hear those things for people, maybe God is allowing that person to be a minister to you to say, I've noticed that you do something good that encourages us. And the appropriate thing to say is, why, thank you for that. If this is what God has called me to do, then will you pray? I like to think that God has given me some ability to preach in a way that's beneficial to people. And one of the ways that that came about, I mean, how did I know that? Well, I would preach a few sermons now and then as a younger man. And there was a man who had been a preacher for many years, and he heard one of these uh, sermons, and, and everybody else told me I was pretty good. Truth of the matter was, I was trying. I really wasn't that good. Kind of like right now. But, you you know, (laughs) anyway, he greeted me and said, you have a gift, do not squander it. And even in my youth, I thought, that's not what you're supposed to say. He's supposed to say good sermon and then we move on. But he wouldn't let go of my hand and he said, I'm serious. You have a gift, don't squander it. And I thought, this is getting way too serious 
I just wanted to preach a nice sermon and move on. Everybody out there wants me to preach a nice sermon and move on. Kind of like today. But he knew God had put him there as a priest, as a minister. And it wasn't for my sake. It was for the sake of people that God could minister to through me. And it's the same for you. You have some purpose that God has given you, some gift. And it may not be preaching. It may not be teaching. God knows what gifts he needs to give. He gives many of them in the near future. We're going to look at that, that God God knows what to give his people so that the body might be built up. But if we know who we are and can minister to others, then we have a royal, a holy nation, a, a kingdom, a whole kingdom of priests where everybody becomes a priest. You know, what would it be like if we truly came to the cornerstone that is Christ and all of us had a sense that this is our identity and this is our purpose, each and every one of us, every age, doesn't matter if you're young, doesn't matter if you're old or anywhere in between, but each and every one of us is called to minister to one another. What would happen if we really believed this? What would we change? See, I'm, I, I'll tell you, I'm not convinced we really believe that. Because sometimes we think, well, it's just a few of you who are the priests or the pastors, even though we don't use that terminology. Well, why do you say that? Well, look at the furniture. This is a one-man area up here, okay? One microphone. We design our furniture around the idea that here is the stage and you are the audience. We don't design our furniture around the fact that we all minister to one another. Now, we haven't gotten to the neat robes yet or any of that kind of stuff. Um, And I'll tell you right now, if we're going to go for the robes, I want the hat, okay? I mean, just throw the hat in. And I want the cool cane staff, whatever, all right? I'm going to put something in that that will light up. But, the, um, you know, I, I'm just saying, if we're going to do that. But we're not going to do that. You know, we don't do that, do we? No, but there is a little bit of a dress code. Oh, okay. Some of that, well, even if that's just supposed to be professional. And, uh, and our, our, our shepherds, they wear blue badges. Nobody else gets the blue badge, all right? So we, we do some of that. I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying watch how that affects us because then, and as this happens every day, it happens on Sundays, it happens during the week when people come up and they say, hey, where is your pastor? Now the first thought that runs through your head is probably not, we're all pastors, we're all ministers here. And, and, and if you did, if that is the first thought, then you'll get a prize. But uh, the... Uh, Usually it's, oh, go find the preacher. That's what's, and the thing is, what that person is asking for, or what they may need, is not necessarily served well by someone like me. In fact, we often give them less. Anyone in the office can tell you this. When somebody calls in and they ask for the pastor, sometimes they ask for the priest, they're either wanting to ask for something or they're wanting to sell something. I mean, you know. They're just, they're, just looking, they're, they're just looking for, uh, you know, somebody that, that's in some sort of management position. That's not the vision of Scripture. The vision of Scripture is that these, these, 
that priests have a calling. They have, they are the ones who know that once we weren't a people, but now we have this special ministry, and, and, and we didn't have mercy, but now we have the mercy of, of God. And you get this, this wonderful privilege of speaking to others about how much God loves them and cares for them. And you get this wonderful privilege of interceding for others in the name of Christ. And it seems unfair, doesn't it, that human beings like us would somehow stand between God and and us? Well, God has, and this is not necessarily scriptural, but God has democratized all that, but that wasn't really his purpose. Because the fact of the matter is, is your, your brothers and sisters are the ones who intercede. They, they can be that intercessory person for you. The fact of the matter is, there's just one who intercedes, and that's Jesus Christ. So you have a high priest, and then you have all of us. And it may be that on any given day, at any given assembly, the person who ministers to you will be the person that you meet and greet walking up and down these aisles right here. Maybe someone who has been through the same experience you've been through. And they know how much Christ has done for them. And when you encounter that person and they share that with you, then I would say, as we've sung in that song, you've seen Jesus Christ, our Lord. It wasn't that we sang that one verse, have you seen Jesus, my Lord, have you seen him in the face of your brother or sister? That's very biblical. What would it be like if we really lived up to that vision of being that kind of holy nation, a royal priesthood? It reminds me of a a fable that's been told. I don't know how old the fable is. It comes in many different forms many different details, but the lesson of the fable is always the same. The story starts with there being an ancient monastery, and the ancient monastery was dying. It was in decline. The monks were growing old, and they were dying off. Young men were no longer interested in dedicating themselves to the monastic order. And in the days before, the monastery enjoyed serving the nearby villages. Villagers would come to the monastery to pray. They would come to the monastery because they knew they would come closer to God there. And they would even come to the monastery to do business because the monks there had gifts and skills and they would make wonderful things and there would be trade and there was, there was thriving life. But not anymore because the monastery was dying. It was in decline. And so the abbot, the leader of the monks, feeling this loss of hope, the bitterness that was growing in the monastery, he heard about this old hermit who lived in the hills, a man of wisdom, a mysterious man who lived alone on a mountain. The abbot in desperation thought, well, maybe the old man will have some word of advice. Maybe he'll have a revelation and he'll, he'll know something that will get us out of this decline. Anything we might be overlooking. So the abbot went off on a long journey. He finally got to the hermit's cabin. He sat for a while, had bread. 
They talked. He explained his problem to the hermit, and the hermit quietly listened, but he would not say much. They sat in silence for long, long passages of time. And finally, the abbot, waiting after this long trip, had to hear something. He didn't want to go back home a failure. He just wanted a blessing, a prophecy, anything. He couldn't abide the silence any longer, and so the, the, the abbot begged the hermit for an answer to his problem. The hermit said, I'm sorry, but there isn't really anything I have to tell you. I don't know what the future holds for your monastery. I'm sorry. And so the abbot slowly got up, put on his cloak, prepared for his long trip home, and he began to accept that he had failed and the monastery was going to decline. He would be gone with the funeral of the last monk. Just then the old hermit spoke up and he said, Oh, there is this one thing. I do believe that the Messiah is in your midst at the monastery. The abbot's heart suddenly leapt. He got excited. The Messiah is in our midst? The Messiah among us at the monastery? Could it be? Could he be visiting? Could he be returning, hidden among someone at the monastery? Even one of the old monks that we thought we knew, could he be the Messiah? So on his way home, the abbot mulled this over, and he thought, he thought of that story of Christ traveling alongside the two travelers on the way to Emmaus, and how he spoke to them daily, spoke to them along the way, and they didn't recognize him. And what if daily, every day, one of the, one of the monks, so ordinary, what if he was the Messiah among them? Christ was in their midst, and they did not recognize him. Would it be possible? the abbot arrived at the monastery and he reported the unexpected news. And the brothers began to question the Messiah. The Messiah is in our midst. Is it really possible? If so, who could it be? Who among us would be the Messiah? Surely not Brother Nicholas. Nicholas? No, he gripes too much. No, it's not him. It couldn't be him. But maybe that's all part of the ruse. Maybe Maybe that's how we don't recognize him. Could it be Brother Stavros? I don't know. Brother Stavros is so whiny. He always has those problems. Could it be? Could it be? What about Brother Peter? I don't know. He has bad breath. Is it possible? Maybe it is. Maybe it's all part of the ruse. They began then to treat each other differently because they viewed one another as possibly being the Messiah in their midst. And a spirit grew at the monastery. And finally, rumors that the Messiah was in the midst of the monastery was reported to the villages. And the people came to the monastery wondering if it could be true. And the villagers began to treat one another with love and respect. Because it was then reported that the Messiah may have come to visit the monastery and now He lives out and wanders through the villages. And He could be one of the villagers that they would meet every day. And soon this spirit grew within the monastery and out into the villages. And people wondered if their own neighbor might be the Messiah. And everywhere in those villages around that monastery, people were striving to know God. For they knew that if they, belie- if they, if they knew God, they would be able to recognize the Messiah much better. And 
no one ever identified who the Messiah was in their midst, but for many generations to come, the people thrived spiritually. And though no one in particular was ever identified, the monastery and the villages were blessed, and people for generations to come devoted themselves to faith. Why, it's just a fable. But is it biblical? Or is that just a neat story? Is it possible that the Messiah could be among us? Well, Scripture reveals that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, is truly among us. Not hidden as an individual, but His Spirit is among us. We were told in 1 Peter that you're being built into a temple, living stones, a temple for the Spirit of God. And yet Paul has this idea in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, if you want to look there. Paul has this idea that the Spirit of the Messiah in our midst does cause us to look at each other differently. It should cause us to look at everyone differently. In verse 14, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, Now, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we've died to our old life. He died for everyone. I'm going to say it again. Christ died for everyone. So that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Now because of this, verse 16, we have stopped evaluating others from a human, from a worldly point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a worldly point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. The Scripture says that Christ died for all. Not just for the saved. Christ died for all. Now you may say, well, wait a second. Does that mean just lickety-split, that everybody's okay, that we're all fine? No. You see, some have received the message, and some have accepted it, and some have not. But even the one who rejects the message, even the one who rejects that Jesus Christ is Lord, Christ died for that one. There is no limitation to God's salvation actions. Christ died for all. So you have a neighbor, or you have someone you work with, or you have people that you see, maybe someone that you love very dearly, and they have not accepted Jesus Christ. But I tell you, you're going to look at them differently when you realize Christ died for him. Christ died for her. That person that you're angry and that you're upset with, that person who's caused you at harm, you're going to be angry about that. And you're going to need to do something about that. You're need to have, you, you may have to come to terms with that, even if you can never talk to that person. But Christ died for him. Christ died for her. So you can't look at anyone any longer through just a human point of view. Even within your own families, parents, husband and wife, children. That's just our family. You know, sometimes we might say, look, you know, we, we might 
we might live as if we have this idea about, you know, well, you know, you may be my brother in Christ, you may be my sister in Christ, but in this house, here's the way it's going to be. In this house, we're going to be the children of God. That's the way it needs to be in every household. You can't look at people, even those people who are not us. And we tend to spend a lot of time in church figuring out where the boundary lines are. Now, are they one of us? Are they a member? Not a member. Are they one of our people? Not one of our people. Are they part of our tribe? We need to figure that out. We become kind of like that Dr. Seuss story about the star belly sneetches, you know. And you got a star upon the R and all that, you know. And, and we, we want to know who's in, who's out. All we need to know is this. That every person you meet and you encounter, Christ died for them. Some of them have heard the message and accepted it. Some of them have not. Now, if that's the case, what are you and I going to spend our time doing? How about we take up the role of priest to a world that God loves enough to send His Son and we spend our time mediating or representing the presence of the divine. All those people that you meet. I mean, imagine it like this. Imagine that, that, that we wake up tomorrow morning and everyone has received a text message from heaven. And the text message from heaven says, I love you. Come to me for salvation. Please reply. Now, that means that some of us are going to reply, and you're going to meet people tomorrow, and you're going to say, did you get the text message? Yeah, I got the text message. Did you reply? And some people are going to say, oh, yeah, I replied. Good. And some people are going to say, I'm not so sure about it. Seems like a scam. Don't think so. And then there's going to be some people who don't know how to get their text messages off their phone. And then there's going to be some people who don't get text messages, but they're going to be told the news. That's such a silly little analogy. But maybe it just helps you think about the fact that the message has been delivered to all of the earth and we need to talk to others, again, as priests. We're going to be obedient. We're going to serve God. We're going to serve the high priest. We're going to offer prayers. I mean, those people who haven't received the gospel, who don't know that Christ died for them, do we ever stop and say, you know, it's all on me to get them to, to twist their brain around. I mean, I've got to get them to accept. I've got to drag them in here kicking and screaming to go through the right procedures. Or do we just pray for them? That's what priests do. That's what they did in the temple. They prayed. And they believed that God would answer those prayers. If you and I are serving our God in the temple, not this building, but the temple that is our fellowship, then do we believe that our God answers prayers? Or does He just slumber? Also, our mission as priests then is to declare the praises of the one who saves. Peter puts it like this. He says, you are declaring the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into the light. Sometimes we disqualify ourselves as the priests of God, because we say, well, I don't know what the right lesson is. I don't know what the right thing to say to somebody is. Do you not know your story? You are uniquely qualified to tell your story. And even if you think your story is boring, it's not as boring as you think, because it's a story about how God is working in your life. And as long as that story always points to the truth of the gospel, 
then declare your praises. Tell your story. Preach your sermon. Mediate and represent him. If you've come to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, this is your purpose. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And know that you have been uniquely equipped to minister and serve in his name. Now, when we stand and sing this song, this is what on this earth we do here quite often. We stand up. Not just because we've been sitting for a long time and need a stretch. We stand up because when you receive people, you stand up. You're going to see some shepherds here and in room 100. I'm going to be wandering around here. The reason we do that is because somebody may need a minister, a priest. Not just me and the blue badge guys, but anyone who's here. I love it when someone comes forward and others come up and surround them. Why? Because the shepherds and me and everyone here, we all want to serve and show kindness and love in the name of the high priest. We are all servants in his name. Maybe just the people next to you. Maybe they, need a, maybe they need an arm around the shoulder. Maybe they need their hand held right now. Maybe they need a quiet prayer said for them. And we call this the invitation. Let's call it the invitation to ministry. That in the name of Christ, we have this opportunity to minister to one another in song and in prayer. And in any other way, we can minister in His name. Let's stand, let's sing, let's fulfill our purpose in God.